Today's scripture reading comes from Malachi 2, 17 through 35. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand where he appears, or when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the, the sojourner and do not fear me says the Lord of hosts. This is God's word. Thank you for having a seat. Harvest Decatur, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Boy, those are strong words, aren't they? Good morning. Good morning. Good. Thank you, Josh, for reading that passage in Malachi. Um, If you have your Bible, uh, I would encourage you to turn to that passage as we go through it this morning together. Malachi chapter 2, verse 17 through 3, 5. This is the fourth oracle in Malachi. When I was about six or seven years old, I uh, was living in with my family in Argena, Illinois. That's uh, just northeast of here on 72, if you're not too familiar with the area. Uh, and one day, the, the neighbor girl, she had a, a friend over there, and, and they were maybe like 14, 15 years old. Um, and our houses were fairly close to each other. And for some reason, I was playing outside, and I was on the side of the house, and they pinned me down and, and trapped my arms and, and dug their fingernails into my face. Don't really know why. Maybe I was being super annoying that day. I, I don't know, maybe she had a rough home life and, and she was looking to take out her pain on me. It, it's an odd memory uh, to have locked away, but it's, it's stayed with me all these years. In our text this morning, we are... We're looking at an accusatory statement against God concerning his justice, whether he's fair or not. Does this memory qualify me to ask if God is fair? I don't know. Years down the road, uh, with a fair amount of life in between, my wife and I, we were attending a, a United Methodist Church because she was hired on there as the administrative assistant and we thought it would be you know, easier for her to do her job if we went to that church. 
it's a good reason to pick a church, right? But I was doing what I normally do. I was looking for how I can serve, how I can use what God has crafted in me to bring him glory. And so I went through a, a lay speaker certification process. And at the end of that certification, there was a, an interview with, with the lady that was uh, instructing it. And in this interview, she began telling me everything that was wrong with me. She began challenging my character and and. And at one point, she looked at me and, and, and she said, come back at me. I said, I don't want to. I didn't understand what was happening. I didn't, I didn't know what was going on. I was, I was certified through the program and it made that interview even, even more senseless. But it was, it was dark. It was inappropriately aggressive. I was looking to serve God however I could and I received more pain in the process. Does this memory qualify me to ask if God is fair? I don't know. As we look at this passage from Malachi, there's two questions to consider concerning God's fairness. The first is, why are we asking if God is fair? And the second is, are we ready for God to be fair? And with this, there are four things to note in response to these questions. The first Thing to note concerning why are we asking if God is fair when our assessments can be skewed. So you can write that down in your notes. Our assessments can be skewed. If you would, you can look here to verse 217. We'll begin getting into this text. It says, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? These people, they were standing in defense of an accusation of wearying the Lord, and they were asking, how? How have we done this? How have we wearied the Lord? And Malachi gave them the response. And it says, you're questioning the Lord's retributive justice. That if the guilty are to be punished, and the innocent are to be praised, then when the guilty prosper and the innocent are slandered and murdered, then surely God has chosen to bless evil, their argument goes. Otherwise, we would see the God of justice move. But you know, these, these aren't innocent bystanders caught in the wake of an evil government or a greedy corporation or some malevolent group. No, they were, they were culpable of much more we can see down in verse 5 that they themselves were often the ones partaking in the oppression of others. And so it's not without a sense of irony that the oppressors are then questioning and accusing God of his lack in justice. You know, when, when we think of the issue of justice and fairness in the U.S., many of us, we, we consider that regarding individuals. But with Malachi and those that heard him preach, there was an assumed communal focus. Their culture was more oriented towards shame and honor within the community rather than success and failure of individual persons. So this counter-argument is attempting to make the point that God has acted unjustly with Israel and has not fulfilled his promise. Of course, they're completely nullifying their own responsibility and holding up their end of the covenant. 
Which is why we can see in just after our passage in verse 6 and 7, we read, For I, the Lord, do not change. Return to me, and I will return to you. But their assessment of God is skewed. They have reasoned that if, if they live uprightly, the, the covenantal life that they're called to do, that God will bring, will bring justice upon the community if, if someone else doesn't. So therefore, why bother with living uprightly? If God can bring punitive damages to those who live uprightly because the community as a whole is not, thereby punishing the just, then one might as well live as if there is no retributive justice at all. Instead, they might as well operate within the world systems that gets them what they want, yet they still come to God expecting, complaining, grumbling against him, asking, where is my justice? Why are you not fair? Malachi is driving the point that even in their complaint against God, they are being wearisome to the Lord for the very thing they are seeking, justice. God is relenting from delivering to them their due. Our perceptions too can be skewed, can't they? My family's taken into our home a three little boy, three year old little boy. And uh, he'll be in our care for a bit. But I find myself answering a lot of why questions. And I've, I've, I've learned two recent lessons through this. One is that I'm, I'm not explaining things enough. See, when my kids were younger, were that age, I was over-explaining everything. I think I wearied them with my words. The second thing is, is every time I answer, when, well, not every time, many times I answer one of these why questions, it's followed with a, no, it's not. What do you mean, no, it's not? I'm telling you what it is. <laughs> but here's, here's what I've learned. We don't really grow out of that, do we? We learn to, to say that response in a more refined manner, a more sophisticated manner. But many times when truth is presented to us, our response is to, be suspect of it or worse dismissive we're presented with some truth and our our first our first response is to say well nah I don't know about that really I often wonder if this is how God feels with us he reveals himself to us in his word and he gives us counsel by the spirit of truth through other believers and we're like no it's not as humans, we can, we can place so much authoritative force on our own individualized perspectives that we can get to the point where we're questioning God's motives. We determine that we have a better handle on what morality is, on what truth is, on what justice looks like. When I first started getting into the workforce as a younger man, I... I never really watched many sports games. I, I didn't drink coffee, and I never, ever paid attention to politics. But it seemed that those around me, they, they were doing all these things. So I started drinking coffee. I started watching and rooting for the Chicago Bears. I started listening to Rush Limbaugh. 
maybe not all the best choices in life, but at least I know what I want when I walk into a coffee shop now. (laughs) But early in the turn of the century, there was a lot of political chatter about the values voter. What I find interesting is that this, this push for a value argument or a morality argument is now present on all sides of the political spectrum. We like to determine what is right, don't we? And more often than not, the side that we're on is the right side. Somehow, each of us, while others that we've loved and cared for disagree, our assessments can be skewed. When we place too much validity on our own experiences rather than the revealed truth of God's word through the applicational power of God's church, and we can end up being on the wrong side of God, telling him what's right and what's wrong. J.P. Moreland, in his book, Love the Lord Your God with All Your Mind, he veers into this topic when discussing why Christians should develop a robust intellect in order to equip and engage our secularized culture. He states, individual rights are important, and for the Christian, they are grounded in the image of God and not in the state. In other words, the Christian believes that human rights are derived from the image of God in us, and they do not ultimately come from the state. But there are more fundamental questions of virtue and duty that are relevant to the overall development of the moral outlook. For example, the abortion debate should not be primarily framed as a debate about the right to life versus the right to choice. Basically, it should be discussed in terms of this question. What does a woman or a community committed to moral virtue and duty do when faced with the question of abortions? The tenor of the debate changes drastically when issues of virtue and duty to others is brought to the foreground and rights are relegated to the secondary position in the moral context. In other words, when we as humans fight about whose rights are being trampled in one singular issue, we're fighting about our own perspectives of morality are. And not only are we declaring to others what we think are right, we're declaring to God what we think he should think is right. People tell God, the sovereign God of the universe, that abortion is murder and it should not exist. And the fact that it does shows God to be unjust. People tell God that if women do not have the right to choose, then they are simply property and objects and less than human themselves. And the fact that such oppression exists means that God is unjust. Our assessments can be skewed. As Christians, we're not without hope in this conundrum. For we have hope in the day of our Lord, who will set right every wrong and bring peace everlasting The people of Malachi's day had a similar hope. But sadly, our hopes can be misplaced. That is our second note you can write down this morning. Our hopes can be misplaced. If you would turn with me to verse 3, 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. 
There's a lot going on in these two verses, so let's, let's take it step by step so we can properly understand how our hopes can be misplaced. So it begins, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Those of you familiar with the gospel accounts, you might notice that this verse sounds familiar. So pop quiz time. Who's Malachi talking about here? <laughs> this, is, this is the one, is that what they got? John the baptizer, sir. You get a thousand points, okay? You can collect your prize in the back after the service. Good job. But you know what? With this, if you ever get into an, uh, a discussion with someone who's claiming that, that Jesus never said that he is the Lord, that he is God, then, I'll, then point them to this passage, the passage in Matthew eleven seven fifteen, and then Malachi 4, 5 through 6. Matter of fact, if you want to write those down, you can. So here, Malachi 3, 1, Matthew 11, 7 through 15, and Malachi 4, 5 through 6. Jesus said that this messenger was and is John, and it's clear that Jesus views himself as the one to come after John, the one whose path has been cleared. So if John is the messenger, then Jesus is saying that he is Lord, Yahweh, the one who spoke to Moses in the burning bush, telling him that his name is I Am. And as the Lord, he is the messenger of the covenant, the bearer of truth and good news. But if our hope is in Jesus, how can it be misplaced, right? I, I can feel Don wriggling in his seat up here and he's about to get the hook to pull me off the stage. <laughs> so how can it be misplaced if our hope is in Jesus? Well, it can if we have the wrong Jesus. If our Jesus is the one to bring a miserable end to all those people doing detestable things, we might have the wrong Jesus. If our Jesus is the one to solve all of our problems and make our lives heaven on earth, then we might have the wrong Jesus. Malachi is telling his listeners that when the Messiah comes, the one they delight in his coming, when he does indeed come, it will be with a bit of a shock. And it will be with far more than what many have bargained for. For who can endure the day of his coming? And boy, has Jesus lived up to that. There is no single point in history that has had as much transformative change as that is Jesus' ministry, death, burial, and resurrection. And to this day, he is still performing the unexpected. Even in my own life, I can confirm his transformative and unexpected power. When I was younger, I believed in God, I believed in Jesus, and I would pray, but it would be in a manner that I felt like I couldn't ask too much, as if there was a, a, a cap to how much I could ask for, and I felt like I needed to pray for a lot of other people so that that cap wouldn't get reduced. Granted, it's good to pray for other people, but when it comes to the praying for the things that I wanted, the things that I felt that I needed, it often had to do with, with things that I desired. More importantly, a singular focus thing that I desired. 
And that was my approach. But when the pressure came and the darkness of feeling rejected and alone swallowed me, my prayers were for God to be fair by ending my life. The brokenness that was me was too much for me to fix. And the effort to appear normal required more than what I could give. I just wanted to be done. And I asked God to let me be done. Please let me be excused from this life. But then Jesus did what Jesus does. He came and he answered my prayer in unexpected ways. When I asked to die, he let me die to myself. When I asked to no longer live, he let me live for him. Who can endure the day of his coming? Surely not I, and thank God I cannot. We have the wrong Jesus when we want him to punish others because they deserve it. We have the wrong Jesus when we want him to bless ourselves because we think we have earned it. But we have the right Jesus when we realize our own brokenness and recognize him as our only hope for restoration. So this accusation of where is the God of justice was answered with he is coming. They lived with an anticipation of the coming Messiah. Malachi was challenging them and saying, are you sure you know what you're asking for? We are also anticipating the coming Messiah and the resurrection. Are we ready for it? Who can stand in the day of his coming? Who can endure it? It will be those who have been transformed by Jesus himself. Those who have been refined and restored. The real fairness of God comes by way of his own involvement. Fairness comes with God's improving us. That is our third point for this morning. Fairness comes with God improving us. We get back here to to verse 3 in our text. It says, He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in the former years. One of Malachi's rebukes was concerning worship and sacrifices that were mechanical. They were going through the motions. They performed the rites and they did it in a way, but their heart was not in it. Instead, they looked to the world system and power brokers of their world to fulfill their needs and satisfy their desires. And then they came to the Lord for worship. It was in form only. His critique was especially harsh of those that led worship those who performed the ceremonial rites, those who sang hymns and psalms and other spiritual songs, those who recited, read, and expounded on the law, that even in their attempt to worship the Lord, there was a spirit of autonomy that polluted it. So worship team, watch out now. Oh, and our scripture readers, you better bring your A game. We won't talk about the preacher. But in all seriousness, this is, this is something that the elders here, we look, we look to get right. That when it comes to worship and handling God's word, we want excellence in recognizing God as God so that our worship and our service can be acceptable to him. 
but can I let you in on a little secret? And don't tell the other elders I told you. It's not up to us. Malachi tells us it's the refiner, the one who restores us, who will make the offerings acceptable once again. And not just those who lead, but all of God's people through the power and presence of the refiner will be pleasing to the Lord. The reason is that what was polluting has been removed. It's been burned out. It's been melted away. My first exposure to the practice of smelting was, was reading in God's word. Now, I had seen things in movies, you know, like making a silver bullet in the Monster Squad, but the technical information of the practice, I didn't really get into until I noticed it being used in Scripture. And my knowledge was only technical even then until I witnessed the process firsthand. I find it fascinating. The science is fun, but the, the look of the hot molten metal is mesmerizing. And then seeing the dross just float on top to be scooped off, pure illustrative art, just beautiful. And no wonder the biblical writers like using the metaphor so much. Malachi tells us that Jesus sits down and works us like a smelter to remove that which hinders our purpose and his pleasure in us. What an amazing God we serve. His work in us. Not just to make it so that we live right by him, but make it so that he can enjoy our relationship and our presence with him even more. And he does the work. How sweet is that? How could we not worship him more because of it? When we gather together, it may look like we're simply singing songs and and listening to stories, but in reality, We are collectively offering up our hearts to be transformed by the refiner. We are subverting our will to be challenged and changed by the one who makes all things pure and whole. When we pray to our Father because of the redemptive work of Christ, our souls, fused with the spirit of truth, stretch all the way into heaven as we encounter the Lord of the universe. Is God fair? More than so. But fairness also comes with God's conviction. That is our fourth point this morning that you can note. Fairness comes with swift conviction on us first. Verse 5 here. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. The accusation against God is where is the God of justice? And the God of justice replies, I will draw near to you for judgment. This you are those that anticipate the coming of the Lord. Those that need and require the refinement of the Lord. Those that have wearied the Lord with their words. Malachi goes through a list of vices that are being refined, that are being judged and will be judged with the quickness of the Lord. 
sorcerers, that is those that practice and believe that the physical manipulation of the material will force the ultimate reality of the spiritual to bend to their will. Adulterers, those that view their own pursuit of happiness and sexual expression as trumping any commitment and fidelity to another. Perjurers, those that who lie and cheat so as to gain and maintain power over others. Oppressors and exploiters, that is those with, who withhold others their due wages for greater personal gain. And those that marginalize others who are restricted from earning wages, such as the widows and the orphans in their society. And the racists, those that marginalize others who are culturally different and regard them as less than their neighbor. And for those who live by these vices as values of their lives are people who do not fear God. They do not hold him to be the arbiter of truth. They do not respect him to be the creator and sustainer of reality. God's judgment is on these things stands, and unless we have these impurities removed from our lives by the refiner, then sadly his judgment rests on us. You know, I feel I need to confess something at this point. Our family plays a, a wizard's game on the PC. We like it because the chat feature is limited and it's, it's not out of control like many other online games. And even when the kids were younger, we could set it so that their chat interaction would only be predetermined in-game responses. But does playing this wizard's game, does this mean that I'm promoting or condoning sorcery? Does this mean I should step down as an elder? Does someone who watches Harry Potter, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Chronicles of Narnia, or He-Man, the Masters of the Universe movie, mean that they're in danger of judgment? Well, maybe the He-Man movie, but it's a different story. These movies, they all carry an idea of magic or force that permeates life, and depending on the context, the characters are able to manipulate that force to accomplish certain tasks. This sounds a little bit like sorcery, doesn't it? But you know what else it sounds like? It sounds like science. That there are laws that govern reality, and depending on what we craft and form, we can manipulate those laws to our advantage. We can build a plane and fly, even though our biology doesn't allow us to. We can change an atom to let it release tremendous amounts of energy. That sounds like magic, doesn't it? Well, no, it sounds like science. Just as those movies sound like entertainment. Good or bad entertainment, you be the judge of that, but entertainment nonetheless. Inherent in sorcery is the belief that God or God's spiritual forces have to adhere to the will of the sorcerer because of a crafted symbolism that binds them to the physical representation. Sorcery, like idol worship, is a means to which the practitioner attempts to control God. This is what's an affront to God. God is far more concerned with the why that is tied to our actions and behaviors than he is the behaviors themselves. Now, this doesn't mean that everything is fair game as far as judgment is concerned, if we do it for the right reasons. 
If I want to steal from my neighbor and give it to charity, that's still wrong. That's still bad. That's still theft. That's because inherent in the action of taking something from someone else is a determination that I think I know better what to do with those items and more appropriately than he does. And that I think more, I can do it more wisely than the God of the universe in his sovereignty and allowing them to have it. This is an attempt to view myself as being omniscient when God alone is. So what do we do with this list of vices then? Really the same thing that we do with all of scripture. We look for why it is and how God says it is and we look to see how that why applies to our lives. See, it's easy to look at verses like 217 that simply states you have wearied the Lord with your words and think that it applies to us directly. Granted, not many will choose to do so with that verse, but with others that say the Lord will heal your land, there's a desire that wells up inside of us for the Bible to be a tool of incantation that binds the Lord to its pages. Rather, understanding why these things were written and the spiritual principles that are in play within them and how they reveal to us who God is and who we are in him, that means what it means to read the Bible. So I've, I've talked a little bit about sorcery and probably enough, but I do have a challenge that I want to throw out to you, to your family, to your small group. Pick one of these vices here, false testimony, adultery, oppression of the widow, the fatherless, or the sojourner. Do a search in a concordance or open up your Bible app and, and search for these words that you find there in Malachi. And read several entries that you find. See if you can gain a better handle on why God's judgment stands on these things. And then look in, in your own life. Compare those whys to any whys that you've got in your life and see if any of them correlate. So why are we asking if God is fair when our assessments can be skewed, when our hopes can be misplaced? Are we ready for God to be fair because fairness comes with God's improving us? It comes with swift conviction on us first. The coming of God's justice starts with those who desire his presence. One of my first sermons when I was a teenager was at a, a park. We were doing a, a VBS parents day and I preached a gospel message. It was terrible. <laughs> I felt like I had to make the gospel attractive. I felt like I had to, to, to tell people, if you believe in Jesus and you accept Jesus into your life, then, then here's what he's going to do for you, X, Y, Z. As I've grown older, as I've experienced more of life, as I have learned and studied the word of God, I've come to find out that you can't make the gospel attractive. What's attractive about the gospel 
is that when we get to the end of ourselves, that's where we find Jesus standing, waiting, ready to accept us. That the things in our life that, that hinder us and bind us and keep us from connecting with the God of the universe, he is the one to take them away. That is the gospel. I'm enamored with the creation story and, and, and what happened with it and how humanity went awry. And God presents this garden to humanity and he, and he says to Adam and Eve that, that everything in this garden is yours for the taking. You can have it. It is a gift to you. And there are numerous trees, probably numerous bushes with all kinds of berries and fruit and all the things that they could ever want and imagine. And I'm sure all of them were desirous I'm sure all of them were tasty. I'm sure all of them looked beautiful. I'm sure all of them, it was just captivating and you could stare at them and just, that looks so delicious. But they looked past all of it to stare at that one tree. And everything else was offered at a gift and they took the one thing. And they said, I want it to be like God. I want to say what's right and wrong. I want to be the master of my own fate and determine my own way and my own cause. That if you have made us to be the caretakers of this world, then we're going to do it the way we want to do it. And that same spirit still resides in humanity. That same spirit still rises up against God. The gospel. The gospel is that Jesus comes to take all that away. To take away the animosity. To take away the anger. To take away the resistance. And to accept the free gift that he's offering. And the work that he looks to do in our lives to change us so that he finds pleasure in us, so that he enjoys us, and so that we enjoy him. And the gospel, the gospel is that, that path of the tree of taking and saying my way is a path that leads to death and death alone. And there's no escape. But Jesus comes and he tells us a different story. And he tells us of a different plan that I can, he says I can offer you a life beyond death. The God, the master of the universe, the, the voice and the power that creates and sustains everything came and he became a human and wrapped himself in a tiny little human heart that bled and ached and longed. And he lived in such a fashion that he was able to be more than what we could ever be. And yet he still took on our death. The life of the universe took on our death so that he could conquer it. So that he could come back to life and he is still alive to this day and he lives and he walks and he breathes. We don't see him as we... as people on this planet once did those who who saw him die and those who saw him come back to life but you know maybe we trust too much in our senses our eyes don't see everything 
George can tell you that. But he is alive. And he's offering us the same hope that even though we all progress this march towards death, that there's hope beyond it. So maybe you're here today and, and you've, you've thought about this some or you've not thought about it at all, but I'm telling you that Jesus says you can live eternally in the joy of his presence and his love and his purpose. That he says that there's more to your life than just what you've experienced. There's so much more. The entire universe continues to expand and God's bigger than it. He's infinite. God, Jesus has infinite life waiting. Maybe you've known about this for a long time. Maybe you've trusted in this for a long time and you just needed a fresh reminder that even in our struggles of day to day, the celebration and the life of Christ and his glory that he lives through us that he works in us as a refiner to make us shine, to make us something more than we could ever be. This is the gospel. This is why we're here. This is why we are Harvest Decatur. This is why we pray. Pray with me. Gracious Father, I thank you so much for who you are. I thank you for your grace and how you cover us in our weakness and our brokenness. And that you are mighty and beyond anything that we can fully comprehend. And yet you care enough to make yourself known so that we may know you and more importantly that we may be known by you thank you Lord Jesus for your love thank you for your sacrifice thank you for what you have gone through thank you for looking past the pain and the hurt that we cause you that I cause you and that your mercy is sufficient. And O oh, Spirit of truth, that you dwell within us. Increase the heat that we may be more like Christ. Burn within us a holy desire to be pleasing to you, to honor you, to give you the recognition that is yours alone. We pray all this for the glory of Christ, our Lord, our God, our Savior, Jesus. Amen.